G'day and welcome to a special edition of the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And today we're bringing you some interviews with people we caught up with at the Fenner Conference 2013. Now our first is Dr Jane O'Sullivan who is an agricultural scientist with a focus on soil fertility and she's been modelling the economic aspects of an ageing population. Does it really mean what we think it means? Does it really mean what they generally say it means? Okay, well now I'm here at the Fenner Conference 2013 and I'm interviewing one of the speakers who has given a talk, uh, Dr Jane O'Sullivan. And what was the topic of your talk, Jane? I was talking about ageing paranoia, so the, the fear of an ageing population um, and the fact that it's it got a fictional basis but the cost of the policy reaction to that, um, the fear of ageing is very great because it's changing the course of our population growth globally and in Australia. Okay, so now let's work through the basic assumption that people trot out when they say we need more people to balance the ageing population. What's the logic going on there? The logic there is that as the proportion of the population who is over 65 years old increases, there will be a smaller proportion of people in the working age bracket, which is roughly between 20 and 65, to provide enough economic activity. Right, so it is an assumption of this that we older people need younger people to pay for us? Effectively, yes. It's really discounting all of the useful things that people over 65, whether they're working or retired, um, actually do for society. And the fact that there are bigger wealth transfers down the generations from retirees to their adult children than there are in the other direction. But there are real implications for um, the pension system and, and for health care. But the, the biggest reason for government concern about it is because their models say that the workforce will shrink and this is where the fiction comes in because they're assuming that the proportion of people, of men and of women separately, who currently work at any particular age um, will stay the same regardless of the supply of workers. And what we find in the real world, if we compare the countries that are cu currently much older than Australia, so Japan and Germany are now as aged as Australia will be by about 2040, um, there's no reduction at all in the size of the workforce, the proportion of people who have jobs, which is really telling us that the size of the workforce is determined by the supply of jobs, not by the supply of workers. If there are fewer people entering the, the working age bracket, really what we're doing is employing the people who are currently unemployed. So rather than having a big increase in pensions, we're just shifting people from disability pensions and unemployment benefits um, onto old age pensions, which is really not much of a fiscal change at all. And there's no change in the size of the economy because the jobs keep being filled Okay, so let, let's talk about costs. What, what are the costs of an old person compared to the costs to the community and government and so on of a younger person? Um, 
that's a good point and, and the costs of an older person are mainly pensions and health care. The costs of a young person are family benefits and education costs. So the Treasury's intergenerational reports um, attempt to add up those costs extrapolated into the future. What they don't factor in is that the workforce doesn't shrink, in fact, and that the shrinkage in benefits required for unemployed people accounts for, for a lot of the increase in pensions. There is still an increase in the cost of health care, but when you take into consideration the cost of population growth, so the cost of the infrastructure that needs to be created to accommodate extra people, that is a much bigger cost than the increasing cost of health care because there will be more um, frail elderly ultimately. So we can actually save more by reducing our population growth than we spend on the increased health care that we need into the future. Okay, so isn't there a, a logic operating that more people means a bigger market and ergo that means uh, more business and more jobs, that it kind of goes around in that sort of circle? Uh, actually, no. Uh, well, what we have to remember is wealth is a per capita thing. So more people meaning a bigger economy, when you divide the economy by the number of people, you don't necessarily find that anybody's any richer. And in fact, you'll find they're poorer because a lot of our productivity depends on what resources we have. A lot of our economic activity is about using natural resources or um, the built infrastructure that we have and converting it into goods and, and services that we then sell. So the more people we have for, on a limited resource base, the lower our productivity or the more effort we have to put in to, to create the same amount of output per person. So it gets harder and harder. Uh, okay, so at the moment we're talking on the basis of logic and because I think we both believe in the methods of science, what sort of actual modelling and, and evidence do we have to go on in this conversation? Right, well, what I wanted to really stress was the difference between the modelling that Treasury has done in their intergenerational reports and the real-world experiment um, of comparing the young developed countries like Australia and USA with the old developed countries like Germany and Japan and all of the Europeans in between make a really good um, gradation in level of ageing. So what we find is that the predictions in the models are not seen in the real world. The real world experiment says that um, ageing is, is not a problem for workforce that it just importantly reduces unemployment and reduces income inequality. So income inequality is a major determinant of a whole range of social ills like um, levels of imprisonment, levels of depression and obesity, um, teenage pregnancy, child welfare. The studies have been shown have been done to show that these things correlate with the level of inequality in a society. And what I've found is that the more youthful societies are the most unequal because 
their workforce is growing so fast and because uh, that means that wages for the lower end of the population tend to be depressed and there's a lot of unemployment. Now, this must be a very complex equation because there are very many variables involved here. How, how do you untangle cause and effect in this kind of situation? Well, I, I'm really just um, plotting the data that is collected by global institutions, particularly um, by the World Bank. They collect that data from all, all countries and um, trying to validate the assumptions that the Treasury modelling is coming out with. The intergenerational reports are based around the idea that the economy is the product of the three Ps, population, participation and productivity. So that's the total size of the population multiplied by the proportion of people who participate in the workforce, who have jobs basically, and multiplied by the productivity, the amount of output per worker. This is a really problematic equation to base our whole economic modelling on, and it's really what Treasury has been doing through the intergenerational reports. It's problematically because, firstly, it assumes that natural resources don't play any part at all, that diluting, degrading and depleting them by population growth doesn't affect our welfare at all because they're not in the model. They're just missing. And, you know, well, there's a lesson for every geographer. You know, if you, <laughs> the first question you ask about a country's prospects is what natural resources it has. Everyone knows that these things are very important to the well-being of the population, but they're completely missing from the Treasury's modelling. Um, the second assumption is that job seekers create jobs. So we get a bigger economy just by adding more working age people. And this is a really problematic assumption. And if you actually look at the data across these countries with older populations than us, you find that this doesn't work. They don't have a smaller workforce through shortage of working age people. They just have fewer unemployed people. And if people are working part time, it's because that's what they want rather than all they can get. Um, there are so many advantages to having an older population. That, this, this seems a, a pretty tenacious attitude that, that you're talking about, that, that we need to pump more younger people to counteract the ageing population and more people in a country is necessarily a more... Is, is a better thing. Why is it so tenacious? Why do people cling to that? Is it vested interest? Is it human psychology? Do you, do you have a theory on that? Um... I think it's mostly vested interest. I think the ageing scare is an excuse for population growth, but it's not the primary reason. So the, the primary reason for businesses wanting to relax immigration laws particularly and for the property industry wanting to increase um, both immigration and the birth rate is that they want to make a bigger profit in the short term. And they are able to reduce wages and conditions for employees and therefore get a greater profit from what they're doing by having a, a bigger supply of job seekers. I do say they're importing cheap labour. They're importing cheap labour. Yeah. 
Um, they're also importing demand for housing so that whatever land assets you currently own as an investor increase in value. Um, and that increase in the value of housing is really impoverishing the next generation who won't be able to buy into the housing market, will spend all of their life spending a lot of their total income on housing through either rent or very high mortgage payments, which reduces their ability to save for their own retirement. So in trying to avoid an ageing burden, we are creating an ageing burden because we are creating a generation who can't afford to look after themselves in retirement. If we had a stable population with um, moderate house prices that weren't inflating then people would be able to save well for their retirement retirement, and, you know, there wouldn't be a problem because the people supporting the old age, no matter how numerous they are, are themselves during their working age. It's not the workers who are there during their retirement. Now, on my walk over to the Shine Dome just now, I made a personal resolution that I was going to ask each of my interview guests to end on a positive note. So... Uh, uh, Jane, do you have a positive note for me to end this interview on, please? It's called Depopulation Dividends. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a, a new concept that's coming into the, um, the demographic discussions a little bit. Um, I was at a conference in Korea a couple of months ago, and um, particularly the Germans are starting to talk about this, this concept. And there are so many benefits from having an older population with lower unemployment, lower um, environmental impacts, less dependence on imported resources, a greater proportion of people's lives spent on leisure activities, and a greater inheritance. So currently most people have to buy their own home and make their own way in the world. In a stable population, you expect to inherit at least part of a house and other assets which aren't divided amongst so many of the next generation. Is that partly about changing the language? Because there's something inherently negative about saying old, you know, you've this picture of this frail person walking down the footpath with a Zimmer frame, and then you say young, and there's this rippling six-pack abs and they're bounding along the beach. So by, you, do you think this using this depopulation dividend is it an attempt to kind of reframe the, uh, the, the question a little bit? Um, I think it's perfectly valid to get away from those negative connotations of old people because I think they're mostly really off the track. I mean, the young have a lot to learn and I think a society that has more old people with more experience and more wisdom and more social connections is potentially a much healthier society than a society of adolescents who are still kind of learning the ropes. <laughs> Well, 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 Jane, it's a big topic, and you personally feel optimistic. Oh, look, I, optimism is a valuable resource, and we should treasure it. But we shouldn't be turning our backs on the real challenges that, that lie ahead, and um, food and energy security are really big ones for the future. And We really need to take the whole equation of how many people can live well on, on planet Earth more seriously than we are. Good. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's very interesting. Thank, thank you. you. 
And that was Dr. Jane O'Sullivan speaking to us from the Fenner Conference at the Shine Dome 2013. Our next guest on Fuzzy Logic is Dr. Hayden Washington, who's written a book called Eco Solutions Environmental Solutions for the World and Australia A Sense of Wonder, The Wilderness Knot, and Climate Change Denial Heads in the Sand 2011. Okay, now here at the Fenner Conference, tomorrow you're going to give a talk on denial. What's the main thrust of your talk tomorrow? Well, basically it's about, uh, we've been hearing about the problems today and people have been saying, yes, we can solve it. But of course, I'm going to point out our biggest problem is actually denial because you don't solve problems you don't believe you have. So if we can actually break the denial dam, we can actually move to solve the environmental crisis and move to sustainability. And there's lots of elephants in the room we don't see. I mean, population, consumption, the growth economy, climate change, uh, some we see more than others, but they're all there and they're all big enough to squash us. Uh, Now, I I was writing a little bit myself about uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her five stages of grieving, uh, which are the emotional states we go through when we're facing death and I, I can't remember off the top of my head but there were one of them was denial and the final one was acceptance where we do something is there a, a parallel here with that do you think oh yeah well we deny often psychologists will often say we deny things which are too painful i had a friend who died recently of cancer and he went through denial and anger then the anger is the next one you know so you deny and then you go anger um Bargain, bargaining i think was another one yeah, I guess you try and bargain with the universe to try <laughs> hope things can be, be changed. But, um, yeah, I mean, we call ourselves as a species, we call ourselves homo sapiens, wise man. But, of course, a lot of us, unfortunately, are homo denialensis. We have this, at least half of us, this ability to deny things which are too painful or too scary. So we, we've got the evidence in front of us, but we won't accept the, the validity. Is yeah. this something that you're really seeing on a large scale in Australia and around the world, do you think? Oh, yeah. Well, we've dropped from about 75% believing uh, climate change was caused by humans in Australia to about 56% last uh, last I looked. So the science is actually getting more certain. And uh, uh, the number of people believing that is actually going the other way. Now, of course, part of that's tied in to the uh, uh, fossil fuel uh, denial industry. But uh, part of it is also, it's been said by uh, Stanley Cohen wrote a book called uh, States of Denial, and he, he suggested three ways of looking at denial. One's, uh, one is uh, the actual literal denial that basically fossil fuel industries is not happening. Then there's interpretive denial, which is often what uh, governments and business do. So they don't say, they say they don't deny the problem, but then they use spin to pretend they're doing oh, something. So, so it's playing with the nuance of it, is yeah, it? Yeah, well, it's a bit like yeah, the same. Liter- uh, interpretive denial is when you talk about collateral damage instead of killing civilians, you know. It's a, you put a di- different take on it and you pretend you see the road and you're moving in the right direction. So that's been, but the, one of the most interesting ones is in implicatory denial, and that's denial most common in the public. Uh, And that's where you accept the literal truth of things like climate change, but you don't convert it into action. And so you you then distract yourself. So you think about other things. You go off in different directions, what's happening on the footy, what's happening with MasterChef or something. And sadly, this is quite common in uh, we the people. (laughs) And uh, that's why. But there is, um, as uh, Zerubbabel wrote a book, The Elephant in the Room, and he points out... uh, 
there is this tendency to denial in society, but there's also a tendency to question denial and break it. And if we can actually get to the tipping point, one tipping point we do need, unlike climate change and other things, is if we can actually break the denial dam, then you can actually see things happen. So if we can do that with all the problems we've been talking about here today and we're going to talk about tomorrow, we can actually become uh, solvers. <laughs> yeah, so we move to thinkers, warriors, to actually doers. I, I want to I get into how we respond to this in a moment, but first, can we do a little compare and contrast what's a sceptic versus a yeah. denialist? Yeah. Yeah, I know, because it's often, uh, even since the day when I day the other day, David Suzuki, when he was speaking at UNSW, uh, was talking about climate sceptics. And the problem is, uh, and it's very common, but you see, sceptics are actually looking for the truth. In the Oxford English Dictionary, a, a sceptic is someone who's looking for the truth. So you're searching for the truth. Deniers aren't searching for the truth. I mean, all scientists have to be sceptics. That's part of science. If you're a denier, you're denying a truth you don't like. So you're running away from the truth. So they're almost opposites. So is, is there a difference to what the one would do with the evidence versus the other? Sure. Because uh, people like uh, Professor David Crowley sort of said, you know, 15 years ago he was a, a skeptic about climate change. He wasn't sure whether humans were responsible for most of it. But he was a good scientist. He did his research and, yeah, realized that they were. Uh, and there's been another recent... Uh, uh, Climate. Well, he was actually a scientist who doubted uh, anthropogenic climate change, and he went through all the motions and did his research and actually admitted that the IPCC was actually underestimating the problem. So those are sceptics. But if you deny, you're not going to. You're denying that there is any problem at all. Uh, and the problem is, most deniers will deny there's any environmental problem. It's not just climate change. They won't deny we have a problem with species extinction or. So, so a scientist is he's trained from their bones into the idea of rigorous thinking into using evidence and so on. Yeah. What do we make then of practising scientists who then turn around and uh, I don't know if you want to use the word denialist but I'm thinking of uh, and I'm reluctant to mention names but uh, Ian Plyman's book comes comes to mind. Yeah, sure. uh, maybe you don't want to mention him personally but what, what do we make of practising scientists oh, yeah. who... Uh, well I've read, read, read those books and uh, well I mean basically of uh, practising climate scientists you get uh, there's been at least three or four studies rigorous studies done. The last one was done this year by my co-author John Cook at the University of Queensland and they look at practising climate scientists and you've got 98% of practising climate scientists essentially saying the same thing. Now, deniers will say uh, but that's not 100% but you never get 100% in science. So, uh, because there is quite a strong ideological basis for denial. And uh, what, uh, what Naomi Oreskes pointed out in uh, Merchants of Doubt is that a lot of these scientists, there are scientists, a lot of them are nuclear scientists uh, uh, in America, but uh, you get, pay, you get uh, a geologists like Ian Plummer who are coming out. Um, they're not actually doing it because they're being paid off by <laughs> mining companies. It's ideological. And if you're uh, in terms of the right, the neoliberal view is that uh, the free market equals liberty, and if you're going to regulate the free market, therefore you're attacking liberty, and therefore you have to be opposed because you're attacking liberty, and your science that goes along with you is then denied. Ah, so, so uh, now we, we, we've gone on to political turf here. So yeah. is it seen as a, is a, a problem that it's a green left conspiracy to clamp down uh -huh. on the good time that we would be otherwise having? 
Well, of course, it's conspiracy, isn't it? Theory comes the other way from deniers. It's one of the five, five key uh, denial arguments is conspiracy theory. No, I'm suggesting it's just a, a function of, I mean, it's quite well known that the conservative side of politics is far more into denial than the other side. That doesn't mean, for instance, I think in America, the Republican, I know the Democrats, about 75% of them believe in climate, uh, human-caused climate change, and Republicans, I think it's about 29%. I haven't got the figures right in front of me at the moment, but it's a, it's a big difference. And uh, it's, so it is a problem if, if, you know, if the free market has become your god, I and, so. uh, <laughs> and, and, and you, and you mustn't, mustn't control it, then you're not actually going to solve the problems that form the environmental crisis. And, right, so uh, what, what do we have in our armoury? How do we get to the truth and how do we establish that amongst the people who really matter? Well, I've talked to a lot of uh, deniers, and I, I use the term denier rather than denialist because it's actually a more common and obvious term, and, and denial is extremely common, uh, unfortunately, in, in humanity. And people in really strong denial, you're not going to shift. They're wedded, wedded to their views. In fact, Lord Molson was a British uh, prime minister, uh, politician who said, uh, I will listen to any extra information you have that confirms the belief to which I have already come. <laughs> so he's only going to listen to, to what, uh, what he already has set his mind on. So really, but that's only a small minority of people. So I talk to the ones who are generally confused. And the problem is the media has balances bias. They deliberately create controversy. So they'll get a representative of the IPCC on one side representing, you know, 98% of practicing climate scientists and they'll get someone from a denial think tank on the other side who may be, that think tank may be funded by the fossil fuel industry, a lot of them are, and they'll present them as equals and the public, a lot of the public think that scientists speak 50-50 about climate change, where rather than 98%. Is the fundamental problem we have is the assumption that the logical people use the, the tools of logic to work out the validity of a case, but that doesn't apply to everybody. So in the political sphere, it's a political argument, and there seems to be perhaps the idea that we don't want two degrees, more than two degrees of climate. We'll just pass a law as if the law trumps of man trumps the laws mm. of physics. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, we're very good at doing that. I mean, the whole growth economy that uh, most societies work on, of course, is based on endless growth, breaks, breaks the laws of thermodynamics and uh, ecological reality. Um, so we are quite, that's a sad thing, we are very good uh, at denial. But, uh, I mean, the point is, I, I work with people who are generally confused, and there's, and there's a lot of them, and I point out to them, you know, if 98% of practising climate scientists are saying the same thing in every academy of science in the world, and Australia is at risk because a lot of people don't understand. Everyone's got home insurance, and uh, you know, why do you pay? Oh, because your house might burn down. Well, the risk of your house burning down is a lot less than the risk of what we're doing to the climate. So if you put things in terms of risk to people, people can understand that uh, we should be doing something in climate change because of the risk. And uh, people don't understand probability. They don't understand a lot of the, the actual climate scientists. But if you can actually point out, because often you only got 30 seconds to talk to someone, if every academy of science and 98% of scientists are saying you need to do this, and, and they're actually pointing out it's going to cost us a lot more in the future if we don't, uh, then, uh, you know, even my aunt, my aunt's a denier. 
<laughs> but uh, you know, when you say that, I say that to her. She, you can see she's thinking about it. So it, it is it, it is a difficult thing to work with. But we have to, and the media is making it much harder. They've definitely held us back for at least a decade, maybe two, in terms of climate change action. So being able, you know, and James Hansen talks about scientific reticence, where scientists won't come forward <laughs> enough and actually make it clear what they're talking about. I mean, for instance, I read the IPCC report summary uh, the other day, the one that's just come out, and gee, they, they're not, wasn't written for the layperson, that's for sure. <laughs> it is written for other, other scientists. Well, it says, it says for policymakers, but gee, it's, uh, it's not, they didn't, they needed a good communicator. <laughs> oh, it's dense, dense reading. Well, Hayden, yeah. hey, I, I made a little uh, promise to myself before coming to the show Dome today, they'll ask every one of my guests a to to end on a positive note. Can you give me a note of optimism or, or some positive message from uh, your thoughts on this? Oh well, look, I've been involved uh, in the environment movement and as a scientist and also as an activist since 1974, and I have seen things happen for the better. I've been involved with creation of Wollamai National Park, Daintree, the Franklin, uh, as, as an activist and as a scientist. So, uh, yeah, change, change can happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we have to keep working at it. And also, I do see signs that the denial dam is weakening. If that can actually break, then we do actually have a lot of creativity in what people have called co-intelligence to solve problems. Uh, that's what uh, Thomas Berry called the great work of repairing the earth, and that's the uh, inspiring uh, future that really uh, is the challenge that lies before us. Do, do we need to get really close to a crisis before we finally do pull our fingers out and get onto this? Well, this is quite a big debate in environmental science because a lot of them sort of say, yes, we do, and that's the only way we'll do something. Interesting thing, the latest State of the World report saying crisis may not necessarily help us because you get things called affluence anxiety they're talking about already in the U.S., where when people feel their lifestyles threatened, they dig in, and we want to keep our, you know, our air conditioners, our fast cars, and all the rest of it. So one would hope that uh, uh, we would use our neocortex and our thinking part of our brain to override uh, is point to point out our brainstem, our amygdala is often what we do in fear and normally when we operate out of fear we do stupid things but yeah so it's still a big debate whether a crisis is really going to snap us out of our, the problem is if you're in really strong denial it's, it's going to take some enormous crisis to, to work through but basically you know we as Gandhi said is that we must become the change we seek and because it's not going to come from most corporations it's not going to come from our governments unless we make them. So it must come from us. Well, Hayden, yeah. uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. And from the Shine Dome Fenner Conference 2013, that was Dr. Hayden Washington speaking to us on Fuzzy Logic. And our next guest is Dr. Simon Cho, who is a mining engineering consultant. And listen out for his riff on the pen where energy comes from. Fascinating story. Now, if I look around the room, I can see bricks, there's furniture, there's computer equipment and all these kinds of stuff. And these are the product of our industrial system. And all of these come ultimately, or many of them come from mining and energy. Yes, that's correct. Is, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So what's your take on all of these things? 
Well, uh, mining is uh, exploitation of a natural resource, and we're mining out all the high-grade deposits over time. And what we are left with is the low-grade, hard-to-work deposits in increasingly challenging postcodes. Right. So it's we're having to do more and more work to get the same metal out of the ground. We're consuming more energy to do so. At the same time, our energy resources, which are also non-renewable natural resources, are depleting. And our rates of production for things like oil, gas, and coal either have peaks and will decline or will do so soon in the next couple of years. And what will happen is when energy peaks and declines is our ability to mine raw materials out of the ground will also peak and decline. So our industrial network that makes all the stuff that we are accustomed to as you look around the room here is intimately dependent on not only the energy inputs to it but also a supply of raw materials. Okay, so let's go back to first principle for a moment because you and I, we talk about energy and uh, probably know intuitively what that means. But take me to, say, an example of uh, where energy is used from a mining... Hey, look, I'm holding a pen in my hand. Let's talk about where the energy would have come from in the production of that pen. Okay, all right. This this pen is made of plastic and it's got a metal clip on it and it's got, like, an an inkwell in it. All right. All the raw materials from this, for example, plastic, plastic's made uh, as a petrochemical output. You've got to extract the petroleum out of the ground, oil out of the ground, refine it into petroleum, right? And then you've got to refine that petroleum into plastic. You've then got to shape that plastic into this pen. The metal, let's say, let's steel. You've got to go to the iron ore deposit, dig it up out of the ground, all of which costs energy. You've then got to transport it using energy to a smelter. And you've then got to smelt that iron ore into pig iron. That pig iron is then refined into into mild steel and steel. Right? That steel is then sent to a factory. More energy is expended to transform that steel, machine it into this little clip that sits on the end of the pen. You've then got to assemble the bits of the plastic and the steel and the inks inside into this pen. You've then got to transport the pen from the factory where it was made to the warehouse, more energy again. And then you take it from the warehouse to, say, the department store or the supermarket, more energy again. You then go and buy said pen by getting in your car, more energy, driving to the supermarket and selecting your product and paying for it. So by the time you've actually got this pen in your hand, many, many, many steps have, have gone through to make it from the, from the raw materials and the exploitation of those raw materials through energy use to the, uh, from its point of genesis to the point where you're actually holding it. Wow, that, that's uh, amazing, and it's such a complicated thing. And we, we take it for granted, don't we? Because I can just go down to the supermarket and pull on the shelf, and there's the pen, and I just chuck a couple of dollars on the counter, and, and it's now mine. Is this, do you think, really an invisible thing? It's almost like a success of our civilization, our industrial civilization, that we can do this and not even know that it's happening underneath. Oh, yes, yes absolutely. And the, the, the other part that you didn't, didn't mention, it's very easy to just throw it away and buy another pen without a second thought, right? And you think, well, where does all this rubbish go? Now, the modern society, we take so many things for granted, like the ability to light our homes, right? If you were to go back, say, 500 years ago and say medieval Europe, their uh, uh, energy return on energy invested for their whole society was around one and a half to one. It was quite low, whereas our petroleum society ranges anywhere from 20 to 1 to 10 to 1, as we are now. And 100 years ago, it was 100 to 1. 
So for every unit of energy we use to extract that energy source, we got a hundred times that in return, which which was like a um, a, a good one is is uh, the petrol in our car. Right. If you were to fill up your car with a, with a litre of petrol and if you were to drive it out till the car runs out of petrol, turn it around and you get out of the car and you push the car back to where you started from, right? that translates to about 130 man hours. Right, so one liter of petrol, which is what dollar uh, fifty, uh, translates to one hundred and thirty hours of your hard labor. Right, so if you if you were to sort of pay minimum wage, say fifteen dollars an hour, that you know, we're talking like two thousand dollars and two thousand dollars a liter. Ah, ah, so now are we losing the, uh, the the benefit of the really cheap harvestable energy? Yes. What's happening is the easy-to-get-hold-of energy has all been harvested in all resources. Oil, gas, coal, potable water, arable land, uh, sulphur to make fertiliser. We're consuming all of these resources in ways where we've gotten through all the easy-to-get, easy-to-process resources. And now, while we're absolutely dependent on these things, we're getting to the harder-to-work, harder-to-to exploit resources and we don't seem to realize what we've lost yeah so when people say oh we've got plenty of oil look at all those tar sands in canada what's the problem with those okay tar sands has an energy return and energy invest about five to one uh or or, uh, no no as low as three to one sorry whereas conventional oil is around 18 to one to 12 to one depending on the project it's much much less efficient then you have the devastating environmental concerns associated with that operation right now what tar sands and oil sands have actually done is put the push the peak of oil production back six to seven years peak oil in its convention in its conventional form peaked in 2006 that's now fairly well accepted but now we're exploiting tar sands to make up production demands, right? But the total of peak oil, conventional and unconventional together, is around 2012 to 2013, around now. Uh, and that's according to the latest report from the Energy Watch Group. And, and so what's going to happen as we pass the point of peak oil? Uh, this is actually what it means we haven't run out of oil. There's, there's still lots of oil left in the ground, but the rate of production now declines. So now we have an economic issue of a supply versus demand gap, right? That causes all sorts of problems. So what that means is the system we called economics will then spiral out of control because oil is our primary energy source and it allows us to do work, right, to, 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 to manufacture all this stuff from raw materials. If we can't access that energy anymore... How do we decide who gets the stuff? And so we're talking about an economic problem where the prices will be forced up through scarcity. So why do you think it is that this seems not just an elephant, it's a brontosaurus in in the room? Why why do you think it... I mean, if it's a problem of this scale... Why is there such inaction? Why, why are we so slow to respond? Uh, President Bush did famously refer to Americans being addicted to oil, mm-hmm. but then what, what happened? They're still addicted to oil. Uh, what's happening is that these problems are so large and they have no real solution to them. And, and, and for that reason, the implications are so difficult that as a collective whole, we're going through cognitive dissonance. 
We, we, we don't want to know. On the other hand, for the last 10 years, how many military engagements around the world could be called resource wars, where there are actually wars are being fought in small countries, comparatively smaller countries, with resources like oil or fossilised water or uh, gold reserves or copper reserves. The next major military engagement could be around Central Asia, the stands. Right? Uh, so much effort has been pushed into that area. So the world around us is actually changing. It's becoming less stable. Yet there's lots of people telling us it's all right. Stay at your post. Use your credit card. Work. Keep working. Consume. But as a whole, we are approaching a transition point where we will transform as a society into an era of scarcity. Do, do we have alternatives? What about biofuels and mm-hmm. algae and uh, secondary cellulose fermentation and methanol, ethanol and all those things? Hydrogen. Mm-hmm. They are all good ideas and they have practical limits. Uh, again, we're back to energy return and energy invested. Biofuels has a, a ratio of about 1.3 to 1. Right? And also the problem with biofuels is it, it puts in direct competition for food. And we are now looking at food shortages as well. Right? So the idea of biofuels as a replacement fuel for oil is not going to work. That being said, it does have its place in small applications. So we're back to the idea of transformation. Uh, hydrogen, there's not enough calorific energy in hydrogen to be a replacement for oil. But again, if you can get, get past some of the engineering problems, it does have its place. But hydrogen is an energy carrier, isn't it? Not an energy source. So we have to produce it in the first place, yes, don't we? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And, and once you have the hydrogen, you've got to then use it in some sort of mechanical application. Uh, it can be done like nat- natural gas but there are certain engineering limits uh, that we have not been able to overcome yet. Do do you have a view on nuclear? I do. I don't believe it's viable. It has a number of Achilles heels. First of all, you're talking in terms of for our nuclear fleet to uh, viable to replace fossil fuels, it's got to multiply 12 to 13 times in size. Now, the other problem with with, with nuclear is someone's got to build all these reactors and someone's got to pay for them and then maintain them. Nuclear uh, fuel or uranium is a non-renewable resource just like anything else. If we did exploit all those reserves and turn them into energy, it might buy us 50 or 60 years. Now, at the end of that 50 or 60 years, the nuclear fuel rods will have to be explore, uh, have to be stored because they're hot and they're radioactive and they need to be in powered facilities to keep them cool. So when nuclear power peaks and declines, oil, gas and coal and all our conventional energy resources will have already peaked and declined and will not be in a position to generate enough power to supply the power to keep those reactors. Uh, do, you, do you mean those things become net energy users at this yeah. point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so something has to something has to use the energy to keep those spent nuclear fuel rods cool for 10 to 20 years after they've been used. So as nuclear goes offline due to we don't have the uranium to process them anymore, we have to prevent an environmental catastrophe by keeping the spent fuel rods cool. Oh dear, Simon, now now I'm feeling quite depressed and I'm asking each of my guests... Sorry? Have a pint of whiskey. <laughs> a pint of whiskey. It sorts all sorts of problems. 
Well, I'm thinking of pie to something uh, very soon. But uh, look, I'm asking each of my guests today to end on an optimistic or a note. Do, do you have one for me? I do. Uh, while the era in front of us is extraordinarily trying and challenging, as a species, we've got to mature and get past this idea that we've got to consume every uh, non-renewable resource in sight. We've got to mature and learn the lesson, how do we interact with our environment in a sustainable fashion? And we're in a better position to do that now than ever before because rates of education of both genders has never been higher. Right. So if we must go through something like this, now is a better time to do it than, say, 100 years ago. Well, he, he's hoping, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Pint of whiskey. <laughs> Pint of whiskey. One on the way. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Dr. Simon Michaud speaking to us here on Fuzzy Logic from the FENA Conference 2013. Our next guest here on Fuzzy Logic from the Shine Dome, the FENA Conference 2013, is Dr. Michael Lardelli, who's written a book, Peaking at Peak Oil. Okay, so here at the Fender Conference, I'm now interviewing Dr. Michael Lardelli, who is a energy and population activist. That's how you describe yourself, Michael. That'll do for now, yes. <laughs> that will do for today. Now, we've just been interviewing uh, Simon... Michaud, yes. <laughs> Simon Michaud, yes. We're good friends, yes. <laughs> and he, we were discussing the end of cheap energy and how the energy return on investment is really declining and mm -hmm. peak oil primarily being an example of that. And so you're now picking this up from that point and saying, how is this story being presented to us, the we, the people of Australia and, well, the Western world, I guess, well, is that right? More about how it's not being presented to us. Um, we're constantly being told that um, energy is not a problem and that there are great resources out there and, and that there's so much coal and so much oil that don't worry, there will be enough. But that's actually complete rubbish. And um, it's, it's, it's basically an idea that's being put out there by the oil industry because it's vital to their continued existence as companies. But also um, we want to believe, this is a story we want to believe and especially governments want to believe because they really do want to continuation of business as usual. They don't want to think that there will be um, a crisis in the future regarding energy supply. Okay, but the, 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 pre the premise is that cheap energy is is largely gone and that we're at about peak oil right now. Is, is that right? Yes, that's right. Well, we, There are a number of different sources of oil. For example, there's conventional crude oil, which is the great bulk of the oil supply. That um, seems to have peaked back in 2005. We're pretty much on a flat plateau now with that. Um, the declines in that are being made up by little bits of extra supply coming on from this thing they call shale oil, uh, but that is a short-term blip and it will never make a large contribution and um, it's very soon that we'll see the decline in conventional crude oil overtaking any uh, additional supply that can come on from those other unconventional sources. Okay, so now your belief is that there is a comprehensive, I hesitate to say, um, conspiracy, but... Oh, no, uh, it's a, it's a, companies are doing what companies do. There's a propaganda campaign out there which is vital for the continued existence of the, of the fossil fuel companies um, to convince us that there isn't a problem with the future supply of fossil fuels. I mean, it's... 
they, the fossil fuel companies literally need hundreds of billions of dollars every year to be invested in their industry so that they can continue to produce fossil fuels. Now, if, if investors no longer believe that production will be possible in the future and if there's a lot of market uncertainty, they will not put their money into those companies and the share value of those companies will fall and they won't be able to continue on anymore. So, so the fossil fuel industry is simply protecting itself. And it, in order to survive, it must suppress this idea that there is a limit on fossil fuel production. Should they not then be looking at alternatives? Because if their raw materials become scarce and the economics of their whole situation changes, uh, shouldn't they start to move to a, a new source? Well, you'd think so. Um, for example, BP was involved in solar photovoltaics for a while there, but um, some people would have say, said that maybe that just was a bit of greenwash to, to make us look as if they were trying to be environmentally responsible. I don't know. But they would have found out also that the, the economics and the scale of renewables is quite problematic and, and doesn't seem to be able to, in any short-term basis, replace the fossil fuels that we, that we use and need. So um, I don't know why they've given up on it, but... Um, you know, they certainly are refocused back on um, just exploiting fossil fuels. Uh, so what about governments then? Why, what's, what's the position being taken by governments? Well, governments really want to continue business as usual, as it were. When you have a three-year electoral cycle, um, you're more concerned about um, just making things look good for when it's time to get re-elected rather than actually trying to put in any long-term policies because the problem with long-term policies is that some of them do actually require short-term pain in order to achieve long-term gain. Now, on a three-year electoral cycle, that sort of action is not possible because the government is basically cutting itself off at the, at the knees if it, if it does that long-term thinking and planning. Um, and also governments have become very dependent... F well, political parties have become very dependent on um, corporations for, for donations and so forth to run their political campaigns. Um, and so if they, you know, they, they very much try to pander to those interests that will give them money. And so those interests, the fossil fuel in industry especially, uh, has huge amounts of money um, to put out to promote itself and um, to promote its interests. So if we were doing the right thing or the, the logical thing or the best thing to prepare for the future, what would that be? Um, well, That's a, that, well is, there, that is a big question. There is, there is a, it, it's a big question, and it, and I guess I should maybe answer that. There are, I guess there are two aspects to it. The way I started my talk today at the conference was I said basically, I said to people, listen, it's too late. Uh, and what I meant by that was there is simply no way that the current system that we live in can continue on in what people would think of as business as usual in any fashion for very much longer. I mean, this coming 10 years, I'd say within five years, you will start to see drastic changes in the way the world around you is working. I mean, we're already seeing the beginnings of the financial crisis, which from a biophysical economics point of view, for those, there are a few biophysical economists out there who try to put economics thinking on a physical reality basis. Um, Charles Hall is the leading proponent of that idea. From that, from that point of view, um, 
the current economic crisis that we are seeing around the world is a result of the fact that we can no longer grow the energy supply and of course that we have other problems such as increasing population and so forth. So we are already seeing the beginnings of the crisis of declining net energy on a worldwide basis and that's driving the current problems and this is, these are only set to become worse because Okay, I don't want to go off on a divergence here, but you need to realise that we're entering an energy crisis, and an energy crisis is different to any other sort of crisis. Other sorts of crisis, crises we traditionally solve by throwing energy at them. You know, we say, what are you going to do about this? Well, doing anything requires energy. You'll have to um, build a new system or invent a new product and manufacture that or something to solve your problem. The problem with this energy crisis is that you don't have energy to throw at an energy crisis. It's, it's not soluble in that sort of way. So there's no getting out of the fate that is before us, which is that we will be facing significantly lower availability of energy in the future, and that's not a long time away. That's within coming years, five, ten years, we're going to start seeing a real decline in the amount of energy that's available. That will probably collapse further our financial system, which is already very shaky on a world basis. And um, what comes out of that and how we struggle to survive in the face of these resource shortages and with a burgeoning world population, um, I, don't, I can't well predict. It gets pretty chaotic. Um, so there is no real... So you say, what are we, what are we doing, going to do about it? We can, we can start to move... Well, the, maybe I think the easiest way to think about these things is on a personal basis because you and I don't really have any influence over governments or large groups of people. We have influence over ourselves and we have influence over our family and friends, if we're lucky. And so when you say, what are we going to do about it? I think the question is, what are you personally going to do about it? And I think then, then it becomes a matter of, well, I can see that a crisis is developing. Um, I need to try and position myself in as best a position I can and with enough flexibility to be able to respond to the things around me. Now, people who think about these things, they often say, as much as possible, get out of debt. Um, they'll say, I, I'm personally a big one for saying that resource shortages will lead to, um, you know, resource decline will lead to periodic shortages in things. Um, for example, we can well expect Australia to be hit by fuel shortages. Those fuel shortages um, will involve then problems with delivery of food to shops and, um, and other things. Now, we currently have a just-in-time infrastructure which doesn't have storages of essential products here and there. Um, what you need to do yourself is to say, OK, what happens if there is a fuel supply and I can't get food at the shops for a couple of weeks? What am I going to do? Do I have enough food at home that I'm not going to go into a panic? And so maybe you should keep some weeks of food just in reserve. I mean, it's the sort of thinking that people would have done 100 years ago or even 50 years ago when life was so much less interconnected and, and in some ways reliable. Um, 
you need to, in a way, go a little bit back in your thinking and, and start trying to make yourself a little bit resilient to, to problems and shortages and so forth out there by putting in some buffers, by putting in some food stocks, um, where's a bit of water, you know, wh- where are you going to get some water if, if, the, if the energy disappears from our water processing supply for a while and so forth. Yeah. I, now, I have interviewed people who talk about uh, not trusting money you keep in the bank. Would you go as far as say, no, I interviewed a person who said she went to the bank and took her money out. Would you go that far? Oh, well, um, when they've gone and confiscated people's funds in Cyprus, and I hear that, um, where else were they talking about it? Possibly um, possibly they're going to be doing a so-called bail-in in Greece soon as well. Then, yes, uh, having cash in the bank maybe isn't a good idea. Um, ultimately, people need to realise, too, that money is only a medium of exchange. It's not an actual good. And no matter what your money is, whether it's paper money or some people go for bullion and gold, or no matter what you're going to try and use as money, if the good doesn't exist, money won't be able to buy it. But So just having money is not, in a sense, being in a very secure position. But in a short-term sense, while people still trust things like paper money, then definitely... um, if you can, as long as you can secure it well enough some other way, certainly not having it in a bank may well be a good idea. And I think if people see more and more of these bail-ins occurring around the world, I wouldn't blame, blame them at all for taking money out of the bank if they have money and they're not in debt. Uh, okay, Michael, now I've been asking each of my guests today uh, a positive note or give me, give me a positive comment of some sort. Uh, given all that, can you, can you give me one? The posi- okay. I tell myself, two, well, I guess, two things. One thing is that I don't know what the future will be, but I do know it'll be, it won't be what I expect. So really, I can, you can see the broad trends, but how it will actually play out in reality um, is no one can really know. So I do think you need to position yourself. And the other thing is that humans are incredibly adaptable. Uh, there will be huge suffering on a worldwide basis in the, in the coming decades. Um, not everyone's going to make it. And in the end, we all, we all of us wind up in a box in the end. That's, that's inevitable. But we should focus on our children and what's important for them. And we should realise that we are lucky at the moment that we live in a relatively very wealthy country that is fairly isolated still from a lot of the world's other problems. And so if we can act locally in our communities, try and spread the idea out there that we need to prepare for problems and shortages and so forth, um, I think we have a much better chance of doing, um, in inverted commas, well here compared to a lot of other places in the world. I'm much happier that I'm in Australia rather than some other places right now. But I can't be broadly optimistic and tell people that that you aren't going to have serious problems in the future because that would just be an out-and-out lie. Yes, no, I'm not expecting you to, uh, to invent anything here. Mm. Right, well, thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for your time and... Uh, I hope things actually are better than I'm feeling at the moment. Well, so do I. <laughs> okay. And that was Dr. Michael Adeli here on Fuzzy Logic from the Fenner Conference 2013 from the Shine Dome. And a big thank you to Ginny Goldie from Sustainable Population Australia and for putting together a top flight group of speakers for this conference and for supplying interviews for us today. 